What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. First and foremost, I want to welcome everyone that's now watching this podcast on YouTube. This podcast has grown a lot over the last several months, thanks to all of you who are listening to it and sharing it with your friends. But a lot of the feedback that I've gotten is that many people would like to watch some of the episodes on YouTube. They want to see the charts that I reference and other things like that. So I'll now be uploading all of these episodes on YouTube as well. It doesn't really change anything for the people that want to just listen to the episodes on Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. But if you want to watch them, if you want to reference some of the things that I talk about in a visual format, go on YouTube. But let's get into today's episode because I want to talk about a few different things. First, we're going to talk about Deion Sanders. You guys know the name. You know what's happening in Colorado. It's been covered a lot at this point. But I want to walk you guys through some of the details financially about what's happening at the university and some of the more under-the-radar stories about how this could potentially change the future of college football forever. Then we're going to talk about the XFL and the USFL. Now, these are two what we'll call semi-professional to professional football leagues that are under the NFL when it comes to talent for sure, but also from a business perspective. They are, according to Axios, going to be merging in the coming weeks. So I'll walk you guys through the details of that report and what it could mean for the two leagues as they join and become one. And last but not least, we're going to be talking about Goldman Sachs. You may look at me and you say, hey, Joe, why does Goldman Sachs matter in the grand scheme of sports business? But the reality is that sports is becoming a huge investable asset class for the super wealthy clients that Goldman Sachs represents. So they are opening up a sports division where they are going to help these clients invest in sports teams, in stadiums, in leagues, etc. So I'll run you through the details on that as well and talk about the impact that it could have on some of these valuations and other things. Let's get right into it. All right, so I want to start with Colorado today. As I mentioned in the intro, you guys know what's happening at Colorado. Deion Sanders came over from Jackson State. He brought in a whole host of new players. He has turned the program around. They went 1-11 last year. They've won three games already this year, 3-0. and Now, this is probably one of the best stories in sports. I was debating it with a friend this past weekend. We said that Lionel Messi coming to MLS was probably 1A, and this was 1B. They're very close in stature, but you got to give it to the GOAT at this point. But still, the Colorado story is tremendous. What Deion Sanders has done there is almost unbelievable. But today I want to talk about, one, the financials, but two, why this has never happened before and why it's going to happen a lot more in the future. The financials are pretty simple. Colorado was a nothing burger when it came to football in the past. They barely got any fans at the games. If you look at the spring game last year, there's this panoramic view of it. There was no one in attendance. They literally couldn't give away tickets to the students. You hire Deion Sanders. He brings in 85 new players nearly. Turns the program around. They're obviously much better. His son is the quarterback. His other son is a defensive back. And the team is much better. Now, look, I want to lead with the fact that this is going to change. Things aren't going to be rosy forever. They play at Oregon this weekend and then at USC or they play USC the following weekend. They're probably going to lose both of those games. Oregon, they're a 21-point underdog right now. They're probably going to be an even bigger underdog when they play USC. I don't care where the game is. I don't care who's in attendance. Travis Hunter's not going to be playing either of these games. Colorado is most likely going to lose. Now, do I hope it's going to be a good game? Of course I do. I hope that they challenge both of these teams. I hope they could potentially pull an upset. The TCU game was incredible because of that, and it's made the Colorado story that much better. But already, even if they lose these games, Deion Sanders, the impact that he's had on the school has been tremendous. He said earlier this week that the first game that they had in Boulder, Colorado, generated $18 million of economic impact for the city. 
Now, that has been told by also Visit Boulder, which is the Convention and Visitors Borough of Boulder, Colorado. So I'm assuming that's where he got the number from. But regardless, $18 million, whether you want to say it's 15 or 20 or whatever it is, it's a lot of money and it's money that they weren't generating before. The tickets for front row seats at the games are going for $15,000 on the secondary market. The Colorado Buffaloes now have the most expensive ticket in college football, more than Ohio State, more than USC, more than Alabama, more than Texas, more than Notre Dame, more than every other school in the country. It costs more money to go buy a secondary market ticket in Colorado right now than it does every other school. That's obviously tremendous given where the program was at with one win last year. You guys probably saw the notes about the sunglasses this past weekend. I tweeted about it on three, then followed up with some more numbers. The company that Deion Sanders recently did a partnership with is called Blender's Eyewear. He did these new sunglasses and they sold 65 to 70,000 orders of them. They don't actually get delivered until I think it's uh, late November, early December, based on kind of some of the inflows that they have. They weren't expecting this many sales. But if you just multiply that by the $67 purchase price, that's $4.5 million in revenue at least, at least, right? They're going to do more over the coming days as well. Several people, hundreds of people actually, in fact, were commenting on my tweet saying that they went and bought pairs. This has been a tremendous business opportunity for Blender's Eyewear. Their CEO is all over the place talking to everyone he could possibly imagine, going on podcasts, going on TV. It's his moment. It's the company's moment. Deion Sanders is benefiting from that as well. But the other thing I want to talk about, too, is the viewership. I want to give you guys some context about Colorado's latest game against Colorado State. Now, this game started at 10.20 p.m. It was a 10 p.m. start, but the Florida-Tennessee game did not end in time, so they pushed it back to about 10.20 or 10.30 on the East Coast. Now, I tweeted this out, and I couldn't believe it. It was the first time that I saw people online begging, begging for an SEC game between Florida and Tennessee to end. They said, please get this game off our channel. This game is over. The Tennessee coach was calling late timeouts. There was a fight. The game just dragged on and on and on. And everyone was just dying to see the Colorado game because on the East Coast, it was already 10 o'clock at night. Not many people are used to watching games past midnight up to 1 or 2 a.m. But that's exactly what happened. And I couldn't believe the numbers when they got published this morning. ESPN says that the game averaged averaged 9.3 million viewers. It was not only the best viewership for a college football game this entire year so far, but it was the fifth most watched college football game on ESPN all time, all time on ESPN. And the reason why this is so impressive is one, it started at 10.20 p.m., but the final ended after 2 a.m. on the East Coast. And John O'Ran from Sports Business Journal tweeted out some interesting statistics. He said at 2.15 a.m. Eastern time, the game still had 8.23 million viewers on ESPN. So again, at 2.15 Eastern time in the morning, the game had 8.23 million viewers on ESPN. That is one, insane. But two, it is the second highest viewership for every non-sports event over the past week, except for 60 Minutes. And get this, the 60 Minutes episode was on Deion Sanders in Colorado. That's how famous Deion Sanders is at this moment. That's how captivating the story is. And I think what we're seeing is a fundamental shift in the landscape of college football. If you look at the traditional powers that we've seen over the last decade, right, Alabama, Georgia, Clemson, we're seeing a changing of the tide to some degree. And I know that's a little bit punny because of the Crimson Tide. I didn't mean to do that, but I will take credit for you if you enjoyed it. But still, what's happening at Colorado is special because of a couple different changes that we've seen. One, the transfer portal. People are now allowed to transfer and play immediately. Number two, NIL. It's essentially pay for play. You can pay college football players now. 
There's obviously some rules and regulations around how you're able to do this, but it's very clear that boosters are giving money to schools. They're directly paying players now essentially to go play for these schools. You're working in tandem with local businesses or entrepreneurs in the area to get your players paid so they come to your school and they're happy and they stay and they potentially don't go pro longer than they would have to beforehand. And the reason why this is so important and unique is because it allows something like what Deion Sanders is doing at Colorado to happen, right? Now you have all the ingredients to be successful. If you brought Deion Sanders to Colorado before this happened, it wouldn't have happened because he would have had to take three, four, five years potentially to build up a roster that was good enough to compete at this level to get the attention that he deserves as a coach. And I mean by that, that you or I may not watch these games if Colorado started the year 0-3 with Deion Sanders. You just wouldn't. The storyline nearly isn't as good. The media attention isn't there. College game day wouldn't be going there. Big noon kickoff wouldn't go there every single week. The games wouldn't be on TV. Nine million people would not be watching these games. But the fact that Deion Sanders can go in and say, hey, look, y'all got to hit the transfer portal. You're not good enough. The coaches stunk. We fired them. The players aren't any good either. Leave. And he said in his 60 Minutes interview, which I think you know some people probably didn't agree with, but I largely did, was the fact that if players are willing to leave based on his words, him saying that we don't want you here, then those probably are players that deserve to be there regardless. That was a team that went 1-11 the year before. And the other common complaint I've heard is that this is all about Deion Sanders. He makes everything about him. The sunglasses, the pregame interviews, the postgame interviews, the midgame interviews, how he talks about the players, everything like that. And to some degree, I get that, right? College football is supposed to be about the athletes. The coaches are, in most regards, a smaller part of that. But the thing that I would disagree with is that it's almost necessary at this point. And the reason why I think that is because to get 9.3 million viewers, the Colorado players aren't interesting enough. People are tuning in to see Deion Sanders. They're tuning in to see his son, both of his sons play. They're tuning in to see if he can back up the talk, what the rivalry looks like with Colorado State, if he gets in an argument post-game with the coach. It's all the narrative and the storyline that he's been able to build up. And every single thing that I've mentioned here, from the NIL to the transfer portal to the attention that Deion Sanders has brought— when you add all of those things up and you put it in a pie, you mix it together. That's how you create the storyline. That's how you get more recruits. Deion Sanders, for example, I was watching, I pretty much watched TV while doing some work on Friday from like 10 a.m. to like 2 p.m. I watched First Take and I watched the Pat McAfee show. And the reason why I watched was because they were at Boulder, Colorado. Deion Sanders came on both shows. So did The Rock. He went on Pat McAfee show and then was on College Game the next day. And one thing that stuck out to me about Deion Sanders being on the show, he said it both times, both on first take and on the Pat McAfee show. He said, we're about seven to eight dogs, what he calls captains, essentially. We're about seven to eight dogs away from being a really good team, right? So he knows that the talent isn't there yet. It's his first year. He's still got some holdovers, a few different players that were on the team last year, a few different positions that he wants to sure up. And he knows that he doesn't have the talent to compete with the Georgias, with the USC's, with potentially the Oregon's or teams like that. And what I think is really interesting about this is that he spoke directly into the camera. He looked into the camera and he said, recruits, check it out. Come here. Come see what's happening. Come play for me. He literally said that into the camera. He looked directly in the camera on ESPN with millions of people watching. He said, we need seven to eight more dogs. Recruits, I ain't hard to find. And that's become his rallying cry of sorts. But the reason why this is so important is because if you're a player, why would you not want to play there? right? Shadur Sanders has the highest NIL valuation of every player in the country. We've heard about Archie Manning. We've heard about Bronny James. We've heard about all these other college athletes. No one is making more money right now than Shador Sanders, the quarterback at Colorado. 
a bunch of the other players like Travis Hunter, Shiloh Sanders, all those guys are going to make a lot of money too. And they're making a lot of money because the media attention is crazy. Millions of people are watching their games. 9.3 million people for a 10 o'clock start is insane. They're probably going to get more than 10 million people for a 3.30 p.m. Eastern time start against Oregon this weekend. I don't even want to guess the numbers for the USC game. If they beat Oregon, those numbers are going to be tremendous too. So the reason why I think this has changed college football is because the coach now matters more than he ever did before from an attention standpoint. Obviously, Nick Saban's an incredible coach. He could walk into any living room in the country and say, I got X number of players, the NFL come here. I don't give a crap what you do on social media. I don't care about any of this stuff. That's not what you're here for. You're here to go professional. You're here to make millions of dollars. I'm the best coach of the country at making you do that. That still holds a tremendous amount of value. I'm not arguing against that. But the charisma that Deion Sanders has, the leadership, the virality that he has, every player in the country wants to go play for him because the attention is on the team. They're going to make money and they're going to have the chance to go professional. And I think that has changed college football more than anything else we've ever seen. If you just look at Clemson, for example, they lost to Duke to open the season. They've blown out a couple other teams since. And maybe the narrative changes if they're able to beat Florida State this weekend. But the matter of fact is that they brought in one kid, I think it is, one kid Dabo Sweeney brought in from the transfer portal this year. If you compare that to more than 80 new kids at Colorado, now they're completely different teams, right? Dabo Sweeney has recruited well for numerous years. Clemson is by and large a very good team. They have a good pipeline of people. So when you look at Clemson, a coach that brought in one new kid and has publicly admitted many times that he does not let NIL run his program, and you compare that to Colorado, a coach that brought in over 85 kids and believes in NIL, wants his players to get paid, wants them to go to the NFL, wants them to financially benefit from being at his school. Again, where are you going to go as a recruit? And I can tell you where people are going to go. They're going to go to Colorado. This past weekend, they had several three, four, and five-star recruits at the game, including the number one overall quarterback in the country in high school right now. I think they're going to land a bunch of different recruits this upcoming cycle. Deion Sanders has already said publicly that he doesn't think his kids are going to go pro this next year. So you're getting back the corner. You're getting back an insane defensive back. You're probably getting back Travis Hunter. You're going to get a bunch of new recruits coming in. And this team could easily be top 10, top 15 to start next year, depending on how the rest of this season goes. So it's a story to keep an eye on. I'll keep you guys updated as it comes, but it's fascinating. Even if Deion Sanders and Colorado lose the next few games at Oregon, at USC, potentially Oregon State, and so forth, this team is someone to be reckoned with because they have the coach, they have the NIL money, they're using the transfer portal, and he can recruit. Deion Sanders can recruit, and at the end of the day, that's what matters in college football. This episode is sponsored by OKX. Crypto is full of opportunities, but it's critical to choose the right exchange to make the most of them. That's where OKX stands apart as a safe and transparent exchange. OKX is the world's most powerful crypto exchange. They serve millions of users in over 100 countries, and you've probably seen their branding on the Formula One McLaren car. But what OKX is really known for is transparency. The crypto exchange publishes monthly proof of reserves reports to help you verify the total amount of assets on the exchange, and their on-demand liquidity network lets you trade instantaneously 24-7. So whether you're a retail or institutional trader, OKX is the platform for you. I'm excited to have them as a sponsor, so make sure to check them out at OKX.com. That's OKX.com. All right, the second thing I want to talk about today is the recent merger news between the XFL and the USFL. So a report came out from Axios and now Sportico and a few others today, but it basically said that the XFL and the USFL are very close in a merger talk. 
So the way this is going to work is that the XFL and the USFL, for many of you already know this, they're the two primary spring football leagues. So the XFL and the USFL were happened two decades ago. They were started. They've recently been rebooted. Dwayne, The Rock Johnson, Danny Garcia, and Redbird Capital Partners bought the XFL out of bankruptcy from Vince McMahon for $15 million. I think it was probably two or three years ago at this point. The USFL is owned by Fox Corporation, and they've both been like doing okay. The USFL actually says they're profitable, even though the XFL says they lost $60 million last year. But from a viewership perspective, both leagues have been doing pretty good. They're averaging about 600,000 viewers per game, and their championship games saw, give or take, a million viewers each. Now, the reason why this is so substantial is because everyone knew this was going to happen, right? Even if you didn't really think about it, it certainly makes a lot of sense. The likelihood of two spring football leagues succeeding is not very high. We've already seen this. The USFL has tried, the XFL has tried, and neither has succeeded. Now, you could argue that maybe it had to do with COVID or other things like that, but the matter of fact is both leagues have tried and they both have failed. So what do you do? You have to unify these leagues. You automatically expand the amount of teams. You can create two divisions. You don't have to work about you worry about adding more teams in the future. You have a new pipeline of players, and you enhance your distribution immediately. And that, to me, is the most interesting part of this deal because the USFL had a deal with Fox, obviously, who owns the league, to get distribution, get put on their networks, and get in front of millions of people. And that's why the viewership was so strong. The XFL brokered a similar deal with Disney and their family of networks. We're talking about ESPN, ESPN2, ABC, all these other networks. And the reason they were able to do that is because of their relationship with Dwayne The Rock Johnson. He does a bunch of movies for Disney. They have a great relationship. He said, hey, look, give me five years, give me four years, whatever it ended up being. Let me prove that this league works. I'll bring you guys the viewership. We'll figure out the business side. We'll talk to the NFL. We'll see like how we can run this in tandem with them, whether it's a technology sharing agreement or passing players around or whatever it is. But the whole idea was that they each felt like they brought enough distribution to the table. But by combining the two leagues, it multiplies that, right? The likelihood of one league succeeding versus two is significantly higher. Now, many people talk about this when I tweet about it or others talk about it on TV, and they say, spring football is never going to work. The NFL is king. People want to watch basketball. They want to watch baseball. They want to watch soccer. They want to watch other things during that time of the year. And my argument to that is, first off, it's just simply not true. These leagues are getting enough viewers. 600,000 viewers per game is a lot of viewers. And the reason why people say it's not going to work is because they use the NFL as a bar. They say Monday Night Football averages 16 million viewers. The Super Bowl gets 100 million viewers. Conference championship games get 50 million viewers. The average game on a one o'clock on a Sunday may get a few million viewers. And that's all true. But the NFL, you cannot use that as a measuring stick. The NFL is the world's most profitable sports league. It's the world's most popular sports league from a pure per-game viewership standpoint. And the reason I say that is because the XFL, the USFL, whatever they want to call themselves after they emerge, they don't need to be that to be successful. If you're getting a million viewers per game, that's success. You can build a business around that. You do not have to directly compete with the NFL. In fact, Dwayne The Rock Johnson said on TV this past weekend, we're not trying to compete with the NFL. That's a loser's game. The NFL is the big dog. We actually went to them and we said, how can we partner? And I've talked to people in and around these deals before, and they seem to have their head on straight, more so than maybe Vince McMahon did or other people that were involved in these deals previously, because they thought to some degree that they could steal some market share and, and take some from other sports. And what we're finding is that 
if the NFL is such a big business where they're able to get 100 million people to watch one game a year when it comes to the Super Bowl and they're able to get 16 million viewers on Monday night and all this other stuff, can you get one to two million people to watch a spring version of that? Probably, right? And like I said, that is a win. So there's still a lot of things to figure out when it comes to this deal. Axios, Sportico, all these other publications were a little bit short on the details, but I'm sure it'll come out over time. It obviously still has to get approved from a regulatory standpoint. The U.S. government is going to be looking into this, see if there's a monopoly or other things like that. My guess is it does get approved. This is probably going to happen before the 2024 season, which is going to be starting in a few months this upcoming spring. And we don't know any of the details from an equity standpoint either. But I would say that this is their one last chance to make this league successful. You cannot continue to lose $60 million year after year after year and continue to fund this business. I don't care if you're Redbird Capital. I don't care if you're Goldman Sachs. I don't care if you're the world's most popular actor with connections to everything you can possibly imagine. If this thing doesn't start turning a profit and make money within the next two, three, or four years, it'll get shut down. That's just a matter of fact. But I wouldn't bet against it because like I said before, working in and around this sports business, 1 million viewers, 2 million viewers for a game is plenty. You can make money on that. I know that they're extremely expensive businesses to run. It's a traveling circus. You got to pay, pay your salaries. You have to rent stadiums. You got to get the broadcast there. You got to do all this stuff. It's expensive. I totally get that. But getting tens of thousands of people to show up to a live event and millions of people to watch it on television, there's going to be a market for that. Fox realizes that. Disney realizes that. And they're making a bet on what we'll call like the second division of football in the U.S., now, selfishly, I wish that they use this for promotion and relegation like they do in English football, but that'll never happen. We all know that based on the investment criteria of some of the owners in the NFL. But one can dream. We'll see what happens with these leagues in the future. Like the other topics, I'll make sure to keep you guys updated. So the last thing I want to talk about today is this news out of Goldman Sachs. And the news is that Goldman Sachs is launching a sports franchise unit. This was reported by the Wall Street Journal last week. And essentially what it is, it's, it's part of their investment banking division outside of wealth and asset management. And the easiest way to explain this is that sports franchises has become an extremely sexy investment. We've seen all the numbers. Everyone talks about how much they've appreciated in value across the NFL, the NBA, MLB, Premier League, you know, every single league you possibly imagine. The sports rights and the teams and the leagues, all of that has appreciated over the last year. And many people believe that this is going to continue in the future because of a few different tailwinds. Media rights continue to explode. The addition of streaming partners has increased the demand. Cable companies have to continue to bid more and more and more because it's the last thing holding their business up. Secondly, sports betting. Sports betting is getting tremendously big in the United States. I don't actually even think most people realize how big it's getting. This is already a multi-billion dollar industry. Only about half the United States has access to sports gambling online today. That is obviously going to expand, whether it's going to come from states like California or Texas or Florida or other states like that. A huge percentage of the population still does not have access to online mobile sports betting. That is going to change. That's going to be a huge tailwind from a dollars and cents perspective for the leagues. And the reason I tell you this is because valuations, by and large, across most of these leagues are expected to double, triple, quadruple over the next decade or two. And Goldman Sachs has realized that it's become an investment that many wealthy people want their hands on. And what do you do right now if you want to be able to do that? I actually know someone, I've talked to people in the past that have invested minority stakes in iconic teams like the New York Yankees, NBA teams, and things like that. And the dirty secret to all of this, for those of you that don't know, is that small minority investments really don't get you that much, right? You usually get like a 30 to 40% discount. So say you're buying a 10% stake in a team that's worth 
a billion dollars, just for back of the napkin math here. Typically, you would say, okay, that's worth $100 million. 10% of a billion dollars is $100 million. That's what you should pay for that. And the reality is that you're usually getting a 30 to 40% discount on that for a few different reasons. Number one, it's a liquid. So you can't trade it like a stock. You can't trade it like a bond. You can't go buy and sell. You can't get your money out. It's a liquid. You, you have to you know, find someone else to offload it to. Usually there's a long, lengthy process of not only getting approved, but selling your shares. And then number two is you really don't get all that much for like a small one, two, three, four, five percent stake in a team. Maybe you get some season tickets. You get to go to team events. You get to go to the parade if they win a championship. But you're certainly not talking to the GM. You're not hiring coaches. You're not usually sitting in the owner's box even. You just simply don't get all of the benefits that the top owner or the majority owner or everyone else would get. Even owners that own 20%, right? 30%. The Washington Commander's new owner, Josh Harris, I think he only owns about like 33% of the team or something like that, right? So the teams are getting so expensive where people are owning smaller and smaller and smaller chunks. But what we've seen because of that is that most of these leagues, like the NBA has been the leader in this are opening these investments to private equity funds or investment funds, both domestically, but also sovereign wealth funds, pension funds, endowments, right? So Harvard University could potentially own a small piece of an NBA team now. Qatar, the Qatari investment fund just bought a piece of the parent company of the Washington Wizards and the Washington Capitals and so forth. So this has been democratized from some instance at an elitist level, right? We're not talking about mom and pop shops buying, you know, $10 of a team that's not publicly traded. That is still not allowed. But the reason why Goldman Sachs is doing this is because access has now opened up for these funds or these individuals to buy stakes in teams. Not only is it more accessible, but it's more desirable because sports are such an intricate part of society. Everyone is able to see the limited supply and demand economics behind them, and they know to some fair degree of certainty, you're able to cash flow this model out and you can say, okay, we know that this team in five years, in 10 years, in 15 years at a relatively risk-free basis is going to be worth X, Y, or Z. And that's extremely, extremely attractive from a investment banking perspective and an asset management perspective, because you're taking money that is already granted with an existing client of your firms, but you're locking it up for a long period of time, in most cases, 10 plus years, potentially for life. And you're clipping a fee on that for brokering that deal. It could be an ongoing fee or it could be a one-time fee, but ultimately this is business that's going to maintain and sit with your firm for a long time. So this is really smart by Goldman Sachs. I think they're actually probably going to see more deal flow here than most people imagine. Most of the word around the industry with this so far is like, it's like one of those sexy, silly products that probably doesn't get as much business as people initially think. But I would argue the opposite's actually gonna happen. I think that there's plenty of people within Goldman Sachs, wealth management individuals, but also family offices and things like that, that would be interested in purchasing smaller stakes of teams. But on the flip side, I also think it's going to have a really positive impact on the overall valuations of these teams because you're just adding more bidders to the market, right? We already know from a supply perspective, it's capped. Whether it's 30 teams in a league, 32 teams in a league, a lot of them obviously don't go up for sale that often. And when you add more bidders to the process, both on a minority basis side, but also a majority basis side, that is really, really, really valuable for the current owners of these franchises and the money that they are able to make from the eventual sale of them. So again, this is something to keep an eye on. It's going to have an impact on everything from franchise valuations all the way down to player salaries, concession prices, ticket prices, everything, right? The overall valuation of the team and how much money they're making drives literally everything that you see from a price standpoint in sports today. So keep an eye on it. I'll update you guys as more things happen. But that's it for today. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast or watching it on YouTube. 
As always, please make sure to share with your friends if you enjoyed it or if you learned something new. I hope you have a great day and we'll talk later this week.